the long night of conversations over the pleasantries of relatively fresh baked desserts, even if there was hardly any sugar in them, was a sweet rarity that warmed Irina's body and spirit. It was special times like this that made her temporarily forget, even if it was partial, the fear and the horror that surrounded her and gripped the once beautiful city of Warsaw. It was hard for anyone with a conscience to indulge in bread that wasn't old and stale, while so many in the ghetto just a few streets away were currently starving. But there was no guilt this night. There was no shame nor regrets. The small company of loved ones with talk of better times was a true gift to Irina, far better than any wrapped present could have given. And with heavy eyes, it was in this mood that Irina finally laid her head down to sleep. And quickly, she was dreaming. Dreaming of her youth with familiar and unfamiliar faces in both recent and distant memories. As past experiences seamlessly converged into new dreams, more and more children began to appear, filling the scenes of Irina's resting mind. And before long, there were multitudes of young ones. So many that Irina nearly felt lost. She could no longer discern if she was in the dream or just a spectator of it. And although at the time Irina herself was childless, the pleasant emotions of motherhood like pride, comfort, and joy were strongly evoked by the throngs of happy children who all seemed to be gathering around an elderly woman. A woman so old, short, and white that it was difficult for Irina to discern who she was. The ancient woman hardly moved, but when she did, Irina noticed that it was slow, awkward, and looked even painful. And it was in the midst of this euphoric perception of feeling like a mother that there came an unwelcome and disturbing pain. Irina could feel it in her heart, and she perceived the old woman did as well. It was like the prophet Simeon when he spoke to the proud mother of Jesus, saying that her son's rise and fall would pierce her own soul through like a sword. Irina's restful dream ended with a nightmare that was just beginning. Suddenly, the harsh pounding on Irina's front door jolted her awake. She knew exactly what was happening and who it was, but it didn't ease the pounding in her chest. Irina had rehearsed what she would do in this circumstance over and over, and like clockwork, she reached down from her bed and grabbed the glass jar. What was in the jar was more valuable than her own life, and for that matter, more important than the three lives of the other women in her house now. That was her mother, Jania, her mother's sister, and her good friend, Jenka. They had spent the night in celebration of Irina's naming day, but the only thing that mattered now was making sure the Gestapo would not find the jar, and they were about to break the door down. With jar in hand, Irina ran to the kitchen window, which sat above the unkept bushes 20 feet below in her small backyard. 
As she lifted the window sash to toss the container down, she saw two guards standing below looking up at her. Dear God, this had been her plan. This had always been her plan to discard the glass jar into the shrubs where it would be kept safe. Irina knew the SS guards were there for her alone, so as a pry bar began to splinter the thin front door, Irina threw the precious container to Jenka. These are our children. They must not be found. The door violently burst open just as Jenka awkwardly stuffed the jar down her shirt. Nine SS guards swarmed into the small dwelling, furiously barking orders. Their presence filled the entire complex with absolute terror, let alone the four women inside the small apartment. And that was the precise point. It was three o'clock in the morning and every neighbor's eyes were on Irina's flat. After three long hours of turning her small home upside down, Searching for anything and everything to incriminate Irina, the Nazis finally stopped. It was now six o'clock in the morning, and despite all their efforts to find something, the guards missed a bag full of cash and identity documents that had been in fairly plain view, but was now covered by Irina's broken bed frame. Irina thought it was a miracle. If there were any silver linings in this nightmare, was that the Gestapo didn't find anything. They only wanted Irina, and they never knew about the glass jar still hidden in Jenka's blouse. As the sun just began to give its light, Irina was ushered into the prison car waiting on the street outside. It was crowded with SS guards, most of whom had already dozed off. Irina had to sit on the lap of one of the agents. It wasn't far after the sedan had left her apartment that Irina had time to gather her thoughts about where she was actually being taken. The infamous Paulwake Prison. It was built in the early 1800s by the Russian Empire and served to retain any criminal or political prisoner in Warsaw. But when Poland gained independence in 1918, the prison held its own country's criminals. But now it belonged to the Gestapo. It is thought that under the brief but brutal stint of Nazi rule from the 100,000 prisoners that were kept there, nearly 40,000 had been murdered on its premise. With the remaining 60,000 being transported to death camps, the chance of surviving an incarceration was basically non-existent. Irina knew this, and as much as anyone could, she began to ready herself for starvation, interrogations, and beatings that would make even the strongest wish for death. And Irina couldn't have prepared herself any faster. The first day of her time as a prisoner was just like anyone else's. It began with a brief and relatively mild time of questioning where she denied knowing anything about Zagota. That was the underground Polish resistance that supplied Irina's efforts in saving the children followed by a purposefully excruciating beating. Batons, fists, whips, and soldering irons were just some of the tools used to make the prisoners more apt to confess in the future. Irina would never really tell about her time in prison, but her legs were traumatized. If she survived the prison, 
The lashing and beatings she took to her lower extremities would undoubtedly stay with her for the remainder of her life. As Irina limped back to her cell down the stone walkways at Pawake, she happened to see a few of her old work partners and even friends who she thought had died or who had simply disappeared. This small comfort heartened her to know that even in this prison she was not completely alone. As the long day came to an end and night fell, Irina, along with the other women in the small cell, leaned against each other and hoped to find just a few hours of sleep. Yet a small and delusional thought harassed her that this had all just been a bad dream. But when the 8.30 morning execution calls were made the next morning, any illusion that this was not reality quickly vanished. At nine o'clock, there was breakfast. This consisted of a thin slice of moldy bread with some coffee. Soon after, Irina's name was randomly called. She was to go see the prison dentist. Irina didn't know what to make of this since she had no need for the dentist, but as she was escorted to the small infirmary, she wondered if his trip to the dentist was something for her favor. She turned out to be correct. After being seated, Irina was given a small slip of paper by the dentist, a doctor Irina knew before the war with whom she was politically sympathetic with. She unrolled the piece of paper and quickly read the clear and brief message. We're doing everything we can to get you out of that hell. A flood of hope surged through Irina's beaten body. She was undoubtedly strong and determined to never confess, but the secret message greatly encouraged her. Even if the odds were against Irina surviving the prison, the smallest amount of optimism gave her even more reason to stay resolute, and she would need it. For the next few months, Irina was subjected to more questioning and more beatings in hope that she would eventually break and confess something or anything about her dealings with the Polish underground resistance. But her answers were consistent. She was a simple social worker who knew nothing of Zagota. When Irina and her cellmates were not being interrogated or walked around the prison, they would scrub and clean the uniforms and underwear of their prison guards in the laundry room. One day, a psychotic guard who found their work unsatisfactory lined the cleaning crew up against the wall and shot every other woman in the head with his pistol. The two women on each side of Irina crumbled to the ground. Between the brutal cross-examinations and the horror that accompanied their forced labor, the schedule became fairly routine and had now lasted for 120 grueling days. While interrogations and beatings were not every day, giving the women a slight reprieve, it was only short-lived as they were sure to return. The only shred of hope the women shared was that they would not hear their name announced for the morning executions. Until one day, four months after Irina was taken prisoner on January 20th, Irina's name was finally called. She was one of about 15 women that day to be executed. 
Any hope that Irina might have had in being rescued was now gone, and the nightmare was soon to end. And as each minute passed, Irina, along with the others, had really nothing to do but accept their fate. Soon after hearing their names, the group of women were loaded onto a truck that was headed for Shushka. This was a nearby Gestapo holding facility, not only where interrogators waited for prisoners, but firing squads as well. After being escorted into a large lobby, the women lined up one by one. Once a name was called, a guard would walk the prisoner to the door on the left, which led to an outside courtyard. A gunshot would then echo across the stone walls of the cold building. The crack of the rifle rattled the ears and completely unnerved the hearts of those still waiting. Some of the women began to cry, and another one passed out. And then, Irina's name was called. As she began to slowly walk towards the door on the left, the guard unexpectedly motioned for her to go towards the door on the right. Confused and dreading that she was going to be further interrogated, Irina longed for a cyanide capsule. Yet, she did as she was commanded. Once being thrown to the ground in the side room, the guard who escorted her abruptly left as a new guard entered. This German then forcefully picked up Irina by her arm and led her through another door, out into the open winter air. Irina was nearly blinded by the sunlight as she had not seen it in four months. This blinding light coupled with confusion, fear, and pain only made the guard forcibly drag Irina behind him. And after walking through a few side streets, the guard suddenly stopped. He then pulled Irina in front of him, and then with both arms he pushed her away, only to utter the most unimaginable words Irina could have thought. You're free. You're free, he said. Leave. Irina didn't understand. She just stood there, bewildered. Don't you get it? Free yourself, he ordered. Irina was still disoriented in unbelief. She didn't know if she was in a dream or if it was true or if it was true, she didn't know what to do. As the guard began to walk away from where they came, Irina could only think to demand her identity papers. Give me my papers. Aghast that a freed prisoner would make such a request, the Gestapo guard immediately turned back, stepped up to Irina and blasted her face with his gloved fist. Making sure she got the point, the German then turned around and quickly hustled back to work. And like that, with a mouthful of blood, hardly able to walk, standing near a parliament building in the cold winter of a Warsaw morning, Irina was free. She quickly managed to find her friends and co-workers and even ended up staying with her mother for a few nights despite the huge risk of being caught again. After being shuffled from safe house to safe house, dyeing her hair red and going under the new name of Clara Dabrowska, Irina soon resumed her position as the children's director of Zagota. With the collaboration of Irina's close friends, Zagota had provided the bribe money to free her. No one knows the exact amount that was paid to buy off the Nazis, but it was nearly 35,000 zloty, close to $100,000 today. 
Because of that, Irina was saved. And because Irina never confessed during her time in prison, the glass jar containing the precious list of those children rescued from the ghetto was never found either. And as the children she saved grew up, Irina grew old. Yet as time passed, Warsaw was still politically complicated by the communist role of the Soviet Union. It wasn't until late in the 1980s that Poland regained national independence and sovereignty. And it was only then that Irina was able to travel to Jerusalem to meet many of the children she helped save nearly half a century before. She was almost 80 years old. But Irina had more years left to live. In this late stage in her life, her story of courage and bravery started to become more recognized, for until then it had nearly been forgotten by the world. She received many prestigious awards by Poland, the United States, and Israel. By this time now, Irina was well-aged. She still limped when she slowly moved and her hair had long turned chalk white, but her smile and her eyes were as youthful as ever. Irina died peacefully on May 12, 2008 in her home in Warsaw. She was 98 years old. Even after her death, Irina received many more honorary awards too many to list here. But out of all of those awards, those honors, and those accolades, none held any significance compared to when she was visited, thanked, and adored by those countless children she once rescued. So what a story we have in the long life of Irina Sindler. Again, just as a quick recap, she was born in 1910 in Warsaw, Poland, and found herself in the very middle of the Warsaw ghetto. She was a social worker, and because of that, she was allowed to enter into the ghetto. And, and when she did, she um, rescued children from, from death. And she ended up, at the, at the end of the war, rescuing nearly 2,500 children out of the ghetto. She ended up living a long life of continued service to the people of Warsaw. And if anything, I just wanted to bring her and her example to your mind. There's good books written about her, and I can highlight those books in my notes below. But please uh, um, check out those books and, and get to know Irina Sindler more. In our last episode, we considered how Irina embodied the biblical concept spoken of in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, where Paul says, To the weak I became weak to win the weak. Paul became all things to all people. He said, I have become all things to all people so that by all means possible I might save some. And he says, I do this for the sake of the gospel. And we looked at how last week um, Irina became a Jew in order to save uh, many Jewish children. She embodied that truth of becoming all things to all people in order to save some. And today, out of all the truths that we could concentrate on and aspects that we can look at, I want to draw our attention 
to the children that were saved because the children in that relationship, they were the real award and they were the real treasure for Irina. We can allegorically relate to the children saved from a certain death. As believers, we can relate to that. Irina uh, was the Christ-like figure who suffered for the salvation of others. And believers in Jesus can identify with those who have been saved from a certain death. And as we think of the 2,500 children that Irina saved, um, some of these children, because of their age at the time and because of the uh, of their caretakers and their new parents and the devastation that the war brought to Warsaw, people having to move and flee, some of these children never knew that they were saved. They never knew that they were rescued. They didn't know that a young Polish social worker gave everything so that they might have life. They didn't know that some of Irina's associates and close friends were captured and never released and murdered. They didn't know that numerous people of all nationalities gave of their finances to support and pay for all the work involved in smuggling them out of the ghetto. But some of those 2,500 children did know that. And can you imagine how, how and when they, they learned of their true past? I wonder how their lives were lived knowing all of what was given in order that they might have life. I wonder when they became aware of their true past, how different their life looked, how much more these people were intentional, maybe with their loved ones, or how much more these people cared and loved and served others. How much more did these people speak out against evil and stand up for truth and for justice? Likewise, there are many people today who don't know or believe what Jesus became on their account, that he gave everything for them. Some don't know that God humbled himself to become a man in the person of Jesus, to become scorned, to become rejected, and ultimately to be put to death for their salvation. And as I think about this and, and wonder about these things, all I can say about myself is that I do know that because that's what the Bible shows us. And I, I do know that. And as a saved child of God, I want my life to reflect not only what Jesus saved me from, but what he saved me to. And so the Christian's life should not only reflect uh, what they've been saved from, but what they have been saved to. And there's a, a, there's a quick answer to this, but Jesus saves us from certain death to certain life but it's a life that is marked by the righteousness of God and of good works. If you look at uh, Ephesians 2.10, it says that we are God's creation created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should just walk in them. And just before those verses, Ephesians 2.8-9, we read those famous verses that tell us we're not saved by good works. We're not saved by anything that we do, but we're saved solely by the good grace of God. But we're saved for a purpose, for a reason. And that reason, that purpose is to live a, a life of thanksgiving and gratefulness and of good works because of the grace that we have received. 
And I want my life as a Christian, as a, as a, a child saved by God to reflect the truth of what God has saved me from and what God is saving me for. And there's a great scene in the movie Saving Private Ryan. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, it's only been out for about 130 years now. But there's this great scene where Private Ryan in his old age is visiting the grave of the man who died saving him. That's Captain John Miller. And he is at his grave and he's looking at his wife and tears start to come to his eyes. And he he knows that other men had sacrificed their lives in order to save him. And Private Ryan strove to live a life that reflected that story. Because in essence, his life was bought at a price. And he wanted to live a life worthy of that high calling. And as Christians, we too have been bought with a, with a cost. We've been bought with the blood of Jesus. And like the children saved from the ghetto of Warsaw who wanted to reflect their thanksgiving for the sacrifice made on their account, we too, even more so, can enter into living a life that reflects the great truth of the gospel, the great truth of, of how we have been saved from death to life. And we need to be careful. I need to just put this in here quickly because we can fall into a trap and we can become, we can become condemned that we will never fully exemplify a perfect life because we will never really pay back what Jesus has given us. So listen, the Christian is not meant to live a life as to earn God's grace because it has already been freely given to us. But we are meant to live a life as having received God's grace. Amen. So these were our motives come into play. There's two type of two types of Christians. Uh, one, those who live a life trying to please God and trying to earn or pay back salvation, and that's not what we are called to. The other type of Christian are those who live a life knowing that God is already pleased in them and want to live a life that reflects that truth. And so this might sound a bit oversimplified, and that's because it is. It's not an easy line to walk. On one side, we have a life of never doing enough and that can end in self-condemnation because we can never do enough to earn our salvation or pay back Jesus. We want to stay out of that. But on the other side, we have this life of apathy that is that is not marked. Our life isn't marked at all. We're not different from anybody else and we don't want to be there either. But we want to walk this line because we are meant to live a life as those who have received salvation. I can't imagine Irina being more pleased in life by all of the awards and attention that she received from prestigious people, presidents, and even popes than when she was with the children that she rescued. Likewise, God finds no greater joy than to be in a relationship and have real fellowship with those that he has saved. Knowing that uh, may we live lives that mirror the grace that we have received, that we would give unto others what has freely been given to us.
Before saying goodbye, I want to again thank my good friend Joel for writing the music to these last two episodes for Arena. Please uh, check him out if you have any music needs, if you work for a church or advertising or you're in business and you need a good original music, please contact him. You can find him at www.joelkk.com. That's J-O-E-L-K-K.com. Please check him out. And thank you again for listening. I hope you found this podcast to be engaging, encouraging, and enlightening. If you're joining us for the first time, please leave a review and rating as it puts the podcast out to more people. If you know someone who you think would benefit from this episode or podcast, please tell them about it and share it with them through our website, salvationandstuff.simplecast.com or just salvationandstuff.com. In our next episode, we're going to consider Adolf Hitler, the Bible's teaching on the depravity of man and our own capacity for voluntary evil. Hope you can join us. Thanks again. I love and appreciate you all. I'll see you next time. Bye.